In this episode of Investing in Asia, we'll learn about Vietnam, where investments in startups rose by a factor of eight between 2016 and 2019, and they continue to rise in 2021, even as the country battles COVID. This is Betatron, Investing in Asia, a podcast for people who want to invest in Asia's future. We're talking about Asia outside of China, where 44% of the world's population lives. They are young, they're digital natives, and their buying power is increasing by the day. I'm your host, Arshad Chowdhury, a partner with Betatron Venture Group based in Hong Kong. We are lucky to have today's guest, Eddie Tai, who is a general partner for 500 startups in Vietnam. He's also a GP at Ascend Vietnam Ventures. Eddie did his undergrad at Harvard and holds an MBA from Yale. And we're excited to have him on today. Eddie, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm fantastic. So why don't we start at the beginning? Just very broadly, how do you describe the opportunity to invest in startups in Vietnam to LPs who might have never looked at companies in that region? First, Vietnam has been one of the fastest growing economies of the world for the last 30 years, and it's poised to continue for the next 30 years to grow very rapidly, thanks to certain solid foundations like its large young and digitally savvy population, it's stable society. If you overlay China's economic opening under Deng Xiaoping in 1979 with Vietnam's economic opening in 1990, and you track GDP per capita in the years subsequent to that, Vietnam has actually been surpassing China's pace up until now. Vietnam has nearly 100 million people. It uh, has a median age of 32, so not too young that they can't make money and not too old that they can't spend it. It's a very digitally savvy population. Smartphone penetration is quite high, e-commerce penetration quite high. So these lay a very interesting foundation for a digital economy. And so that's why you see in reports by Google, that's why you see in venture financing reports that the opportunity has grown substantially, the money is flowing substantially over the last several years. I think one thing to add about Vietnam besides its demographic is that it has a very abundant pool of affordable high-tech talent. I think that's probably the differentiating factor for Vietnam versus the rest of Southeast Asia. A few years ago, a researcher at IBM forecasted that Vietnam would be number three in the world by number of engineers in just some years' time. Whether it's number three, number five, not a huge difference, but the point is that's a great pool of talent to be building all kinds of solutions. You've been there a few years now on the ground working with companies. Tell me what you've seen in terms of how the startup community, how the startup scene has evolved over time. What's changed now? I hear people talking about Vietnam as a great place to invest, an exciting place more frequently now than ever before. Why is that? It's in part Thanks to the comparison of where Vietnam was just 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, Facebook was blocked. There was virtually no active venture fund in Vietnam looking for opportunities. In that space, there were still the courageous, risk-taking entrepreneurs trying to build opportunities. But yeah, they, they had little support. It was more of a desert than an ecosystem. Just a few years later, starting around 2015, 2016, we started to see a bit of a renaissance and it's hard to pinpoint one particular factor that triggered it. I think it's just a combination of 
elements coming together in a primordial ooze that started to generate more and more activity, but things like uh, a breakthrough in e-commerce activity, things like the government starting to focus on promoting the digital economy, and things, of course, like people either shifting from corporate roles within Vietnam or shifting from roles from outside of Vietnam, deciding to build something new in Vietnam. In, in keeping with that theme, help me understand how entrepreneurs think about building tech and building online communities with respect to the government, with respect to maybe changing rules on the ground or what can be said and cannot be said. I suppose this is a topic that could warrant his own podcast session. But uh, in short, uh, just like any country, there's a, a mixed impact on of government on entrepreneurial activity. But that said, net-net, the government has been very supportive of, of this new digital economy in Vietnam. And it started with a recognition on the part of the government that this sector would soon not be a sector, but be involved across the economy, across society. And it would be involved in job creation and tax revenue and, and, and so on. So the government around 2015 made a conscious decision of prioritizing supporting startups and the digital economy. They called 2016 the year of the startup. They declared that Vietnam become a startup nation in the fashion of Israel. They sponsored what has become the largest annual tech event in the country and so on. So these, I think, don't create successes by themselves, but they create a space where entrepreneurs can confidently try to be innovative and not have to worry so much about, oh, am I going to be hamstrung by regulation uh, a year or two down the line? What are some breakout companies that have emerged from the country? The first breakouts were kind of domestic-focused players. You know, VNG was the first unicorn in Vietnam. It used to be called Vina Game. As, as you can guess from the old name, it was a game developer and distributor. It has since uh, expanded to a variety of other digital businesses. Besides that, a lot of the early breakouts have been kind of the first-order tech companies that you would expect in any burgeoning digital economy, e-commerce like Tiki, digital wallets and payments like VNPay and Momo. These have gotten tens of millions of users and hundreds of millions of dollars of financing from venture capital and private equity funds. A new set of startups has been arising, and it's a set that we are very excited about, which are folks that are not just focusing on addressing digital economic, digital economy opportunities domestically, but building something that has growing and staying power across markets, whether in the region or beyond. The most notable one that has come out in recent months is a company called Axie Infinity. You may have heard of Pioneer in blockchain gaming and NFTs. So in short, for folks who don't know what NFTs are, <laughs> NFTs are non-fungible tokens. They are a digital item that has unique properties and uh, rather than the commodity like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And this company decides to use that concept to build a game like Pokemon Go with each item being a unique creature. And they have started to build infrastructure around that. It's a lean team of about 40 people, mostly in Vietnam. And they have since broken out since we invested just a couple of years ago. Some numbers as an example. In January 2021, they had about $100,000 of revenue. In July of 2021, that number reached $197 million. Wow. That's in its international revenue. It is international revenue. Their top markets include some countries in 
Southeast Asia, like the Philippines, Indonesia, and Vietnam, but also they have substantial numbers of users in Europe, the Middle East, U.S., Latin America. That kind of story is usually like a shot in the arm for the entire startup community. I mean, when you have these breakout companies, they really do tend to lift the spirits, the enthusiasm, and even drive capital into the country in a way that's really meaningful. I see a lot of similarities in places like Bangladesh and Philippines where the startup community is very cooperative and they are rooting for one another because another company's win is in many ways a win for everyone. I think so. And it inspires folks to start to follow the path in the same terms, sort of a sector or scale of opportunity. So yeah, there's all kinds of ripple effects from winners like this. When you're looking at companies from the perspective of 500 startups, do you guys have a bias towards companies who are looking to become local champions or do you prefer or encourage companies to think more broadly and quickly become international in their scope? Vietnam is a large enough market domestically that you can build a good company that's simply serving the Vietnam market. But we think that there's a lot more potential for Vietnamese founders, Vietnamese teams to build for well beyond that. So we are indeed with Ascend Vietnam Ventures looking to back a wave of internationally iconic companies that we think will arise from Vietnam. Companies like Axie Infinity, like Elsa, which is an international edtech company with users in 100 countries. Companies like Trusting Social, which is enabling alternative access to credit for the underbanked in Southeast and South Asia. These companies all emerged in just the past six years or so and have achieved global scale. And we think there's a lot more to come. What are some challenges that international investors might face related to investing in the country? What do you warn people if they are either individual angels or uh, VCs that are just getting started? investing in Vietnam? I think the warning I would give to them is probably a similar warning you would hear for folks in other countries, which is you have to get on the ground. You have to see how things are happening with your own eyes and understand how people interact. You can hear all the podcasts, read all the articles you want, but it doesn't supplement a live experience. And with that, it, it ends up not being a warning for most people. It ends up being a spark. People end up getting on the ground in Vietnam and they see wow, things are even more advanced than I expected. Not to say that they are developed country level. It's not like another, you know, Shanghai yet. But they look at the two team area where like just outside the downtown of Ho Chi Minh City. And they say, oh, that reminds me just like Pudong in Shanghai 20 years ago. I can imagine the city rising up from the marshes there, right? Or similarly going into a, a startup office or a co-working space and seeing the amount of talent that's packed into such a small area relatively and the work that they're doing is often world-class. I think with those experiences, it becomes a lot more clear that Vietnam's story is not going to be a Vietnam-only story in the next few decades. How about for investors, their ability to execute contracts and pursue claims in courts? Do you have any experience with that? We have been able to avoid most issues. I think it's by virtue of partially where the founders choose to establish their companies and partially the nature of the entrepreneurs that we tend to back. So on the first point, yeah, Vietnam's arbitration process is still developing. It's not as clear as one might hope or expect to see in a place like Singapore, the US or London. And so a lot of 
entrepreneurs anticipate potential concerns around that by setting their offices indeed in jurisdictions like that. Singapore is quite common. And by having that set up in Singapore, then you know, Singapore arbitration applies, Singapore law applies. It's pretty easy from an investor perspective. The second point of the kinds of entrepreneurs to back, naturally, I think individuals with more awareness of how things work internationally tend to understand the importance of a good contract, the importance of adhering to a good contract and, and so on. So it is the case that because we are often backing teams that we are hoping will have the ability to go global, they have this international perspective already. And so then entering contracts that are fair and transparent and so on is pretty, pretty straightforward. We have not had issues. What are some consistent challenges you see on the ground for the startups themselves? I think the common challenges are fundraising, number one. There has been a lot more money coming into opportunities in Vietnam over the last few years. But overall, I would say the financial market is still fairly inefficient. It takes a lot of time. Often the wrong investors are meeting the wrong founders. And so that matching process takes a while. And then even as a founder and investor match appropriately, then the, the process to close, if not well managed, can end up stretching out months as opposed to, you know, the one or two months you might normally expect. So I, I think that's the, the financing market is one major challenge. The second is a common refrain, I think, for any entrepreneur in any market. It's no exception in Vietnam. Vietnam has a, a great amount of engineering talent, has a great amount of functional leadership. But I suppose at a certain level of finding a certain type of leader that has the combination of perspectives and alignment with the vision and is not already taken by another company, it can be hard to find the right match there. So I was talking about C-suite hiring or co-founder sourcing. Those are the two major uh, challenges I would say founders have to overcome. Of course, founders have to overcome many different kinds. So I'm not going to say it's only those two, but those are the prominent ones. On the talent side, as more money pours in, I imagine that would put some upward pressure on the wages people are expecting. What does it cost typically to hire, say, a full stack engineer who's from the local market? So depends on the level of experience. I'll say when I started looking uh, deeply at this about seven years ago, typically you could hire an entry level engineer, uh, software developer, excuse me, for 300 to $500 per month. When was that? 2012 to 2014. Wow. Okay. That's nuts. Because at that time, someone who's developing iOS apps in the US was charging $110 an hour. Exactly. So that number has probably doubled since then, as it should, you know, given the price disparity you just described, if they're, if they're producing the same amount of the same quality of work as someone in San Francisco, why should they be paid pennies on the dollar? But there are a couple of factors that will retain a sort of cost advantage for some more years. The main two factors being the low cost of living in Vietnam. And then the fact that so many companies are now hiring tech talent in Vietnam, both domestically and from international players, that it's a pretty surefire career path now for youth, no, for anybody who wants to pick up coding. And so more and more talent is flowing into software engineering, which will help mitigate some of this upward pressure. Over the long run, there should be equilibration of prices, and that's, that's great for, for the people of Vietnam. Where do you see the gaps right now in funding for the ecosystem? Is it at the later stages? Is that early stages? Do, do you think... The country needs to have more angel and early stage investors. In terms of raw dollars, I would say the gaps are in the series B or later stage. That is 
because of, I think, a firstly a bias among those larger ticket investors that historically for them to find opportunities of sufficient scale for them to deploy 50 million, 100 million, couple hundred million dollar tickets, it needs to be in markets at least as large as in Indonesia, if not, you know, <laughs> India and China, right? Perspective has started to change as Vietnam has grown over the last few decades, obviously. But still, then there's the friction of many of these investors not having had substantial experience in, in these countries. And as I said, the best way to really understand a place is to get there. So they have to spend some time to uh, get familiar. That hasn't stopped big ticket investors getting active. Warburg Pincus put in a, a nine-figure ticket. Softbank Vision put in a nine-figure ticket, et cetera. And hopefully over time, more folks in the later stage will follow their lead. In the middle and early stages, there are some challenges, but it's not related as much to the amount of capital as it is the more general issues of the capital efficiency, capital markets efficiency, getting the right capital to the right entrepreneurs. And behind that capital, the right value add. Most of the early stage and mid-stage investors active in Vietnam right now are fairly new to the industry. My colleague Ben and I have been working together, investing in Vietnam since 2015, which is only six years ago. And that makes us among the most experienced venture investors in Vietnam that are still active. So it's kind of a funny thing to say. But what that means is, yeah, anybody entering the industry has to learn has to make mistakes and so on. We certainly made our mistakes and had our hard lessons in, in the first years of our work and, and others are now experiencing that. So I think that's just a matter of time. What are some realistic exit opportunities for Vietnamese startups? It depends on whether the Vietnamese startups are serving the domestic market primarily or if they are going at international opportunities. Domestic opportunities, there are a, a fair number of acquisition opportunities both from roll-ups of, of, say, number one, number two players in a particular sector or uh, conventional companies wanting to accelerate their digitalization and therefore acquiring the, the tech leaders. That has been happening. Also, what has been happening on this front is larger players in, say, Korea, Japan, China, other parts of Southeast Asia trying to accelerate their Vietnam market entry by acquiring the local Vietnam leaders. That strategy has resulted in most of the exits up until now, but as you can guess, that will tend to result in smaller outcomes, say 10 million to a few hundred million dollar valuations. The largest outcomes are going to be those that hold on, continue to try to be not just country leaders, but, but go, go global. And so, for example, we'll roll back to Axie Infinity, you know, with almost $200 million of revenue in July alone, I think it's unlikely they would be acquired by a local company. You, you can speculate where they might be headed. As VCs, we have relatively long horizons on which we are investing in companies, waiting to see outcomes, working with companies. So something I think about a lot is how climate change is going to impact our portfolio companies and broadly how it's going to impact the region. Southeast Asia, South Asia, densely populated, really susceptible in terms of migration challenges, heat, drought, so many people work in agriculture. So for you, how do you think about the existing climate change and what's going to be, I'm sure, even worse impacts over the next few years when it comes to venture investing and specifically venture investing in Vietnam? Yeah. So climate change is a major issue for Vietnam in particular. A lot of the land is low elevation. The historically fertile Mekong Delta has been uh, seeing a substantial amount of saltwater intrusion 
And I think that trend is only going to continue, unfortunately, as uh, the climate warms. A lot of people in Vietnam rely on uh, agriculture as a uh, source of income. And Vietnam also has a great amount of biodiversity. So there are so many reasons why Vietnam is at risk with climate change. I, I think it's a fault of the broader venture industry right now that not enough investment is going into solutions for climate change. Even though venture capital funds are long-term, 10 years, the solutions in terms of development and implementation, it's going to be multi-decade, if not the effort of the century. A lot of venture capital investors focus on software and other digital solutions, but the world is a physical place. And so there are limitations to how much software and data can do. They can help. But ultimately, if we're going to really tackle climate change, it's going to be bits and atoms, right? So unfortunately, though, a lot of venture capitalists, ourselves included, we tend to bias in favor of bits. They are easier to scale, less risky in some ways. I like that way to describe it, bits versus atoms. I haven't heard it described exactly like that. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the problems of the world are physical problems when it comes to climate change. And so we need physical solutions. And I also totally agree that many, I'd say the vast majority of venture capitalists have had a hard bias towards scalable asset light software-based companies instead of hardware companies for reasons that we all know. It's just risky, expensive, harder to scale and so on. That's right. So, you know, the venture industry will have to evolve over time. In the meantime, there are marginal improvements, incremental innovations that can be invested in that either push us in the right direction or not. As an example, food delivery startups, actually, when you do the carbon footprint, it's, it's quite disadvantageous between all the driving around and the packaging that gets produced and, and used and, and so on. That can be problematic, but there are other forms of F&B innovation that can be backed by venture, that have been backed by venture around, say, cloud kitchens and so on, that can generate food more efficiently. There are kind of alternative packagings that are biodegradable and so on that have been backed by various risk capital sources. So that's good. And then there is some funding from perhaps a certain set of investors around the physical solutions, especially around energy storage, transmission, and of course, production. Ourselves, out of our prior fund, we invested in a couple of companies around climate change already, and we're hoping to see a positive impact from those over time. One example is a alternative protein startup called Cricket One, leveraging an age-old source of protein, crickets. Crickets are consumed by an estimated billion people on the planet already, and they are substantially more efficient from a feed perspective, from water perspective, and so on. And so one, this company can effectively harvest, grow and harvest crickets at a, and, and then produce it for a protein powder. That's great. I absolutely uh, agree that we're going to have to innovate on food, especially when the massive agriculture industry is already being affected by salinization, irregular weather patterns in the region, and especially when half of India... 47% of Pakistan, half of Bangladesh works in agriculture. I don't know the exact stat for, for Vietnam, but I imagine it is well over 25% of the Vietnamese economy working directly or indirectly in agriculture. Yeah, good guess. It's about uh, 30, 35% of the population. Okay, before we end, what should we be excited about 
when it comes to making investments in the region? I would talk about two themes. The first theme is going back to this abundance of engineering talent and not in and of itself, but also that it has arisen in this emerging markets context. If you look at science and math performance among Vietnamese youth or among youth around the world and compare it to GDP per capita, and you go to a scatter plot, you go to the far left end of that lowest GDP per capita, compare against science and math education. You see Vietnam well outperforms other countries in its category. And you go to the right and you see China and you go to the right and you see Russia and you go to the right and you see the US. So that is the level of talent that exists here, raw talent. And the fact that they emerge in this emerging markets context means that they understand the things that still need to be solved here better than their counterparts in San Francisco or London or Tel Aviv. It's a rare country, I think, that has that combination. And so that's very exciting to me to see folks applying 21st century technology to age-old problems. So that's number one. Number two, I would talk about what kinds of technology. And it's true that for much of the last couple of decades, Vietnamese engineers have been doing low-hanging fruit development, websites, mobile apps, building on spec for outsourcing clients generally. But in recent years, and I think we're going to see a lot more of it to come, Vietnamese tech talent have been focusing on more of the cutting edge around particularly AI and blockchain. And that push towards that bleeding edge is what enabled companies like Axie Infinity to arise and Kyber Network, a popular blockchain protocol. We're seeing the fruit of that just over the last few years, and it's only been a few years where this has been happening. So I look forward to seeing the long list of companies that have arisen in the next decade. Awesome. Well, Eddie, it was great to talk to you today. I am super excited about what you guys are doing, excited to see what Ascend does next, and um, wish you all the best. Let's be in touch. Hopefully, we can get on some cap tables together. I hope so, too. Thanks a bunch. Thanks for listening today. If you want to know more about Betatron, where we invest in fast-growing B2B startups throughout Asia, visit our website at betatron.co. I'm your host, Arshad Chowdhury. Find me on Twitter at ArshadGC, where I'd love to hear your ideas about guests and topics related to investing in Asia.